We're in chapter six, right? Chapter six here. We have seen his star. So that's us today. Chapter six, we have seen his star. Let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, beautiful day, a beautiful Sabbath day. And Father, as I look out the window here, when I woke up this morning, I saw that sun rising, casting that beautiful uh, pastel early morning light across the snow-covered fields. And Lord, it's just a reminder of the great promise of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And Father, what better day to reflect on the goodness of your goodness in creation and in redemption than on the Sabbath day? And so, Father, today, as we reflect back on this incredible story of the three wise men coming to give their gifts to the gift, Jesus himself, Lord, may this just really inspire us, motivate us. May this be the perfect way to launch a beautiful, blessed Sabbath day is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, so welcome, everyone. We are on day seven. I can't believe it. Day seven on the seventh day of the week, and we are in chapter six. We have seen his star. And we're going to get right into this, okay? So I need to be less than an hour today, and I will be because I've got a class to go teach. Uh, I'm going to start by, uh, I'm j- we'll just read the, the first paragraph here, which she's actually just quoting from Matthew chapter 2. This chapter is derived from, drawn from, based upon the second chapter of Matthew, and we will spend some time in actually looking at the, the text of Matthew 2 today because there's two things there that really popped out at me. As I've said before, the way I typically do this is I read through the chapter that the Desire of Ages is based upon, so in this case, Matthew chapter 2, and then I go back, read through, I fly over the top, so I actually read through the chapter twice in the morning. So the first time I read over uh, the Desire of Ages chapter, I, I just fly over the top like an airplane. I just want to get a feel for the big picture, the shape of it, you know, just the large landmarks. Where is the chapter going? What's the general perspective? I'm, I'm not getting down, in, in fact, I'm doing very little marking at that point. I'm just reading, getting a feel for the shape of the chapter. Then what I typically do is I go take a shower, think about what I've just read, let that hot water rush over my body, get my brain thinking. Have you ever noticed you get a lot of great ideas in the shower? Anybody else had that experience? Well, the reason is the brain is an organ that's powered by the, the, the circulatory system. And when you get your blood flowing, the brain works better, right? That's why you'll also often get really good ideas if you're cycling or running or hiking because your brain is just working better. So I'll go in the shower, take a nice, hot, long shower. Then I come back in here and then I do what I call hiking through the chapter, right? So, so the first time I'm flying over the top airplane, macro view, helicopter view. Now, and that probably takes me, I don't know, let's say that takes me 20 minutes to read through it or 30 minutes. Now when I land and I start walking through the woods, I'm noticing the details, and that takes me about twice as long. So if it, was an, if it was a half an hour to fly the helicopter over the top, now it's an hour to read it through, okay? It's not, I don't always do exactly this for my devotions, but that's what I've been doing in DA with DA. So anyway, um, I come out here, I walk through, I get out my pens, right? So I'm doing red, oh, get off there. I'm doing my red pen through, I've mentioned before that when I read a book through once, I mark it in one color. When I read it through the second time, I mark it in another color. And that way, at just a glance, I can tell how many times I've read a book through. I've done that for many of the books on my shelf here, right? Uh, And by the way, good books are always worth reading through more than once. This is a great little life hack. If you read a book through, say, for example, you read whatever the book was through, and it was a great book, and it took you 10 hours to read it through, just by way of illustration, 
If you then turn right back around and read that book through, like literally you've just finished it and you're like, oh, I'm gonna go read another book now. If it was good enough to read once, it's probably good enough to read twice, but here's the cool thing. Here's the life hack. When you read the book through the second time, because you're familiar with the direction and the language of the author and the argument that they're making or the story that they're telling, you'll read it through in 50 to 60% of the time. So you'll read that same book back through in five hours or six hours because it's so familiar to you. But here's the life hack part. Not just that you can read it through much quicker the second time, but that your retention is more than doubled, right? So it's, it's a greater than double benefit. And I think it was C.S. Lewis that put me onto this. I read a quotation from him years ago where he says, much is lost by not reading great, through, great books through more than once. And I agree with that. And so anyway, um, I like to, to read a book through and then read it back through. One time I'm flying over the top, the other time I'm walking through the woods. So here we go. We're in chapter six, paragraph one. She's quoting here from Matthew chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Direct quote from, in fact, this is probably the opening verse or verse or two of Matthew chapter two. We'll go to Matthew chapter two a little bit, in a little bit. So these wise men, and I looked this up actually briefly this morning. I'm trying not to turn this into a Bible study time. I'm resisting that temptation over and over and over again. I'm really just trying to extract a devotional understanding of what God's will is for me this morning. That's the way I personally do it. When I study to study or when I study to preach, that's a different feel for me than when I sit down devotionally and I'm really trying to keep these devotional. However, I did spend just a little bit of time this morning looking up this idea of the wise men. And you'll notice at the beginning of the second paragraph, Ellen White says this expressly. She says, the wise men from the East were philosophers. Okay, now most Bible translations, based on what I saw this morning, translate this, uh, this word, uh, I think it's magos, they translate it either as magi, which is the plural of magos, um, or they translate it as just wise men. I didn't find any that rendered it differently than that. And Ellen White just says, straight out, she says they were philosophers. Now we don't know exactly who these people were or where they were from. But it seems possible, perhaps even likely, that they were Zoroastrians. Now, I don't know if you know what Zoroastrianism is, but it's an ancient religion almost as old as Judaism. It's a monotheistic religion from ancient Persia, which of course would have been to the east of Israel, right? And so the term uh, Magi uh, or Magos in the singular is actually the term that was used for the priestly class of the Zoroastrian faith. And what's interesting about Zoroastrianism, very interesting if you've done any reading on it, I've done just a little bit of reading on it. Um, it was a monotheistic faith, a monotheistic faith, which means then that they believed in th the, the creator, one creator, right? They believed in the creator God. And there were some, you know, the kind of similarities that you would expect from monotheistic faiths, like you have between, say, Islam and Christianity, Judaism and Christianity. There are a lot of differences, of course, but there are some significant similarities, and Zoroastrianism was a monotheistic faith. So we cannot say definitively that these three were from the priestly class or the you know uh, aristocratic class of, of the Zoroastrian people of ancient Persia. We don't know that, but it's possible. 
It's possible, and the language that's used to describe them here is magi, uh, or magi. I'm not exactly sure I'm pronouncing that right. And so these wise men come from the east. And remember, in the Bible, when we see the north, south, east, west, in both the Old and the New Testaments, this is geographically relative to Jerusalem and to Israel, right? And so to the east is everything that's geographically east, to the west, to the north, to the south, okay? So wise men from the east come, and I really like the, the latter part of the second paragraph here. It says that they were looking at the indications of providence in nature and that they were honored for their integrity and wisdom. Next paragraph, paragraph three, page 60. The light of God is ever shining amidst the darkness of heathenism. The light of God is ever shining amidst the darkness of heathenism. We made this very point back in chapter three, the fullness of time. Right, and the word that we used there to capture the fullness of time was the word dark. And the idea was, is that God is working with everyone everywhere in every historical circumstance, in every geographical location. And the wise men are now an example of the fact that God is always, in Ellen White's words, shining his light amid the darkness of heathenism. And uh, fascinatingly, they were studying, they were astrologers. Right? They were looking at the stars, and they noticed a new starry phenomenon, something that caught their eye. They must have been familiar enough with the night sky to have noticed an anomalous star, a new star, something that wasn't behaving or acting like the other stars or planets that they were accustomed to observing. Now, I don't know if the same thing happened to you, but what immediately came to my mind was Psalm 19, Right, Psalm 19. Let me read you one of the great creation psalms, and I've got my Bible open to it here. Let me just set the desire of ages down. Listen to this. Psalm 19 now, and I love, I've always loved Psalm 19. I've preached at least one, maybe two sermons on it over the years. Listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That's awesome. What that's saying is, is that the night sky and the planets and all of their, their beauty and the, and the moon itself are actually speaking a language that the people in Persia can understand and Israel can understand, the people from the east, the north, the south, the west. This is speaking a language that everyone can understand. And anyone who's been out, particularly camping, where you're away from an area with a lot of light pollution, when you look up at the night sky in an area where there's not a lot of light pollution, it's like, it's glorious. It's incredible. No wonder the psalmist who himself would have observed many a dark night sky lit up by the innumerable uncountable stars, the heavens declare the glory of God. Verse three, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words, right? The, the night sky is speaking a language a language to the heart, a language of the creator, a language of his, his immensity, his omnipotence, his power, his, his wisdom. Their words to the end of the world, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, what I love about Psalm 19 is that the psalmist goes immediately from what theologians call general revelation, that is the revelation of God in nature, available generally to all populations, all people, all languages. And notice where he goes immediately after general revelation. He goes to what theologians call special revelation, 
which is the revelation of God in Scripture. Verse 7, the law of Yahweh is perfect. Torah is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. That's not the whole psalm, but you get a feel that Psalm 19 moves from the starry sky to the specific revelation of God in Scripture. And he says both testify to the goodness of God. Now, the, the scriptures, of course, were written in the Hebrew language. They were for the Hebrew people, revealed to and by the Hebrew prophets. But the stars and the planets and the, and the moon, they are generally available to all people who live on a round planet, who look up at night and say, man, I must be really small. If all of those stars out there are so grand and so big and so ubiquitous, it gives a sense of scale in the universe, right? It gives you, and everybody knows this, every, every single human being that has ever spent even five seconds looking up at a starry sky, particularly in an area that is very dark otherwise, you know exactly, instinctively, reflexively, you're like, what is the meaning of life? What's out there? And, and is anything or anyone out there that is mindful of me being here looking up at the starry sky? That's the point the psalmist is making, right? The psalmist uh, had spent many a night looking up into the starry sky. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, this is a psalm of David, David the shepherd. And so he would have spent many a night out there without the light pollution of modernity, looking up and just thinking, man, the stars tell us that God is good. Well, these wise men, these philosophers from the East, had also been observers of the night sky. And like a great many people in basically all cultures, or a high percentage of cultures, there was an appreciation that something about the starry sky strongly intimated that there might be something else out there, right? We've all had this experience, at least I know I have many, many times. Now, what's incredible is that she says later in that same paragraph, not only were they looking at the starry sky, what she calls the starry heavens, listen to this. She says, um, as these magi studied the starry heavens and sought to fathom the mystery hidden in their bright paths, they beheld the glory of the creator. That's Psalm 19. Seeking clearer knowledge, they turned to the Hebrew scriptures. Oh, okay, okay. So they also had access to the Hebrew scriptures, right? These are people that were cosmopolitan in their intellectual landscape. They were not parochial. They were not insular. By the way, we're going to get to that in just a second because Israel at this point was very insular. We've talked about their insularity and insubordination, but these people were cosmopolitan. They didn't take the myopic view that we're the only ones and we've got it all figured out and nobody over the mountain or over the hill or over the river has anything to offer us because we're the bee's knees. We're the ones who've got it all figured out. No, they were more cosmopolitan and varied in their understanding of wisdom and knowledge and literature. And so they apparently had copies of the Hebrew scriptures. This is what she says. And so they would look to the starry sky and then they would look to the Hebrew scriptures. They would look to the starry sky and they would look to the Hebrew scriptures. This is Psalm 19, right? The starry sky leads us to the law of the Lord, which is perfect. Now, the very next sentence is a mind-blowing sentence. It's a big one. And this is where we get the sense 
that Ellen White is not just writing as an observer. She's not just writing as sort of a scholar might write or a devotional writer might write. She's writing with some sense of her own insight, right? The, the, this is why a great many people that admire and appreciate the, the ministry of Ellen White have said that there is something prophetic going on here. She sees things, she understands things that are absolutely compatible with Scripture, but which give us a deeper insight at certain points into Scripture, and here's one of them, okay? She says, in their own land were treasured prophetic writings. Well, as I read that, it's pretty clear to me that when she says, in their own land were treasured prophetic writings, she's not referencing the Hebrew Scriptures that she had just mentioned in the sentence before. She's saying in their own land, they had prophetic writings. And we mentioned this, and I'll briefly, briefly say this. In the Bible, we have the record of God's covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants and the history of the unfolding of the making and keeping of that promise. That's basically the story of scripture. But too many have made the non sequitur, that means the thing that does not follow, saying, well, if in the Bible, we have the record of God's ministry God's ministry of making and keeping a promise to Abraham and his descendants, that means that God wasn't making and keeping promises to anybody else. That's not true. That doesn't follow naturally or logically from the fact that what we have in the Bible is a canonical record of God's interactions with Abraham and his descendants. God was working with everyone everywhere, and it is entirely likely, yea, entirely possible, yea, likely, that other people had in their own times, in their own histories, in their own understandings of the spiritual world around them, they had prophetic voices. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. I'm not using capital P, prophet. You can use lower P, prophetic voice. That, and, and, and she intimates that here. In their, own, in their own land, she says, were treasured prophetic writings. She goes on to talk about some of those writings. Then jumping down, I'm on the, at the top of page 61, and I love the way that paragraph three ends. She says, in contrast with their own writings, uh, pr treasured prophetic writings. She says, but in the Old Testament, the Savior's advent was more clearly revealed. More clearly than what? Than their own treasured prophetic writings. Boom. The Magi learned with joy. And I've circled that word here, joy, right here. Joy. That There are themes, there are threads that Ellen White is dragging through from chapter to chapter to chapter. And the theme of joy, which I think was our Chapter four, our single word was joy, joy. That word comes up several times here as well. And so the Magi learned with joy that the coming of the deliverer was near and that the whole world was to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Fascinating. That tells me that the Magi very likely had a copy of Habakkuk. They say, well, why Habakkuk? Well, because she uses a specific phrase there that they became aware that the earth, the whole earth, so this was not just regional, it wasn't just parochial, right? It wasn't just for a, a specific people only. Listen to this. This is the promise of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. I think I've got that right. Yes, listen to this. One of the great promises in the Minor Prophets. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Boom! Right? So, so, in their study of the Hebrew scriptures, they understood better than even the Jewish exponents of scripture of their time 
that God's plan was always to bless the world, to let the knowledge of who he was cover the world. God is not parochial. He's not regional. He's, which by the way, the deities of the ancient world were always regional and parochial and, and petty. And it was us versus them, where, where the one true creator God, his vision was always global, always magnanimous, always inclusive. And they understood that. I'll read it again. The Magi learned with joy that his coming was near, the Savior's coming was near, and that the whole world was to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. That, that the whole world will have a knowledge of Yahweh, just like it will cover the earth, just like the waters cover the sea. Okay, so then over the next couple paragraphs, she describes the, the light that they saw, right? She gets into the details. They saw a light. It wasn't a planet. It behaved differently. And so they have a sense, and this is key, they have a sense that providence is leading them to an understanding that this is some portent, this is some sign, this is some indication, divine indication, that the arrival of the Messiah, the, the, the deliverer, is here right? Now, there's a very key phrase that happens down at the bottom of paragraph four, page 61 and 60 in the original. It says, the Magi had welcomed the light of heaven-sent truth. And that, my friends, is the key. When light is sent to us, if we welcome the light, more light will follow. You get that? That's hot. If when God sends us an insight, God sends us an insight, a truth, If we welcome that insight, welcome that truth, more light will follow. If we disregard it or we regard it with, Ellen White uses this word again here. This is another one of those threads that she pulls through. If we regard it with indifference or contempt or hostility, then God is under no obligation to send us additional light. And so the Magi's posture toward learning and toward understanding the creator was one of welcoming any information that came to them. By the way, Jesus makes this expressly clear in John chapter 7, verse 17. Might want to write that down. John 7, 17. Jesus says, if any man willeth to do my will, he shall know of the doctrine. Now that's a little awkward. I'm quoting that in the old King James. Jesus says, if anyone wants to do my will, I will reveal myself to him. That's what he's saying. This is Jeremiah 29. I know the plans that I have for you to give you a hope and a future. And if you seek me with all your heart, you, I will be found by you. So there's this strong biblical promise that when God reveals himself to us, even if it's incrementally, even if it's veiled, even if it's seemingly fractionally, when we respond to the light that God gives, kabam, more light follows. And the Magi had the sense, these philosophers from the East had the sense, hey, this is a God thing. And I know that you can relate to this, maybe not seeing a starry, you know, phenomenon in the night sky, but you have had a sense, oh, you know, this feels like it's a God thing. When you get the sense that something is a God thing, it probably is, right? Now, of course, your own deceitful heart can trick you, but, but if you have this, man, this feels like a God thing, follow that. Go with that, and it's entirely possible, I would even say likely, that God's going to give you more when you follow the little. Okay, very important here. So they welcome the light. And my invitation to you, and a big part of what I got out of this chapter is to welcome the light. When God sends me light, when God sends me truth, when God sends me an insight, I need to welcome that. And hopefully there will be a train of light that will continue to flow into my life. I don't want to be indifferent or hostile or neglectful to the things that God is showing me. Right? I love this. I love this. 
And then she does something really cool in chapter six. She uses the very important, very small English word as, as, look at this. As by faith, Abraham went forth at the call of God, not knowing where he was going. As by faith, Israel followed the pillar of cloud to the promised land. So in the same way, that's the word, the word as here functions as like that, in the same way. Then she uses another very important two-letter word, so, so, so did these Gentiles go forth to find the promised Savior. Do you see what she did there? That's so cool. She's saying, in the same way that God led Abram, who, by the way, Abram was, was a Gentile when he was called. Paul makes that point expressly in, in Romans chapter 4. Right When God called Abram, he was not yet a Jew. He would become the father of the Jewish nation. But So the idea that God calls Gentiles is like a, yes, of course, it's a no-brainer. And I love what she does there. As God called Abraham and as God led the children of Israel by the pillar of cloud into the promised land, the pillar of fire into the promised land, so in the same way did these Gentiles go forth to find the promised Savior. Yes. Yes, I love it. Okay, I'm gonna make sure I'm not missing anything here. Oh, then in keeping, and I mentioned this in the very first session that we did together, the very first chapter that we did, how Ellen White had this tremendous biblical understanding that the great story of scripture was the story of God making and keeping a promise to Abraham that begins with that initial embryonic nucleic promise I will bless you and you will be a blessing. In you, God said to Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, guess what? Guess what passage Ellen White quotes? She quotes Genesis chapter 12. In that same paragraph, I'll read it to you here. It says, it was the custom to offer presents as an act of homage to princes or other personages of rank. And the richest gifts the land afforded were born as an offering to him in whom all the families of the earth were to be blessed. She doesn't reference Genesis 12, 1 to 3 here, but that's the language of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And what I love about that is it shows us that for Ellen White, this is the lens through which she's viewing scripture through the great promise that God had made to Abraham and to his descendants that in the blessing of Abraham and his descendants, God would bless the whole world. And you think, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the hero of the story. Of course he is, because as we've already noted, he's a descendant of Abraham. He becomes the means by which God kept that initial Abrahamic promise, right? And this is obviously so saturative in Ellen White's understanding that she just quotes it reflexively. She's like, oh yeah, yeah, the Magi, you know, they grabbed some gifts because that was a thing that you did in the ancient Near East. And they brought the gifts to the Savior, right? She says this, they brought them to him in whom all the families of the earth were, were to be blessed. And so she's, she's quoting Genesis 12 there, one to three, reflexively. I love that. Absolutely love that. Uh, she then describes that on their journey, I'm at the very bottom of page 61 here, page 60 in the original. She says that it was a long journey, but the travelers... This is great. Beguiled the hours by repeating traditional sayings and prophetic utterances concerning the one that they sought. At every pause for rest, they searched the prophecies. Clearly, these are not only the Hebrew scriptures because she says traditional utterances, their own traditions. 
and, and I mentioned this, but I'll say it again. If, if you want to read a really great book on this larger picture of the way that God relates to the non-Jewish peoples, read the book by Don Richardson called Eternity in Their Hearts. Eternity in Their Hearts. Man, what a very cool book. And uh, it describes many instances of how God is revealing himself. Oh, I, another book just came to my mind. I don't remember who the author is. I could probably Google it here. You can look it up. God and the Ancient Chinese. Another very interesting book that's along these same lines that God was revealing himself in glimmers and in glimpses in many cultures of the world, many ancient cultures. And I'm sure you've heard stories yourself, mission stories where an angel has appeared to some remote tribe, an angel has appeared to some people group and revealed truth to them. God is not constrained by the insularity of human stubbornness. God is not constrained in his evangelistic mission by the insularity of human stubbornness. God can send angels to go where missionaries have never been. God can send dreams. In fact, she actually says that. Um, Staying in the same paragraph, I'm at the top of page 62. While they had the star before them as an outward sign, bombshell, they also had the inner evidence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, this is Romans 2, this is Romans 8, this is 1 John, that God, by the inner witness of his spirit, what does Paul say there in Romans chapter 8? The spirit bears witness with our spirit and tells us that we are the sons of God, right? The spirit comes in and cries out, Abba, Father. That's not only a thing that happens with Christians. That's not only a thing that happened historically with Jews. God can reveal his loving character and his goodness to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Again, that in no way diminishes the fact that God has given us the canonical revelation of his interactions with ancient Israel in Scripture. Of course, of course. This is the canonical record, and it is divinely inspired. But God is not constrained to only minister within the history and the promise that he made to Abraham. And so I love this. They have the evidence of the Holy Spirit. She says, the journey, though long, was a happy one to them. Uh, She goes on to use the word joyful two times in the next paragraph. So she tells the story. They arrive. So the Magi arrive in Jerusalem. And she, I'm quoting her here now. To their amazement, they find none who seem to have a knowledge of the newborn king. Their questions call forth no expressions of joy, keyword, but rather of surprise and fear. And then a very interesting use of the double negative here. Not unmingled with contempt. Eee. Uh, that's not good. So you can get the picture in your mind here, right? It's, it's an easy one to kind of imagine and a sad one. So these foreigners arrive in Jerusalem and they're expecting that there's going to be, you know, excitement and enthusiasm. The, the, the Redeemer has arrived. I mean, these are predicted in your scriptures, right? Like this is the expectation. But when they get there, and let me read this to you now directly from Matthew, because I've always, this verse has always stuck out to me. I remember when I was a brand new believer And I was reading, oh, this would have been in my first few months of becoming a follower of Jesus. I read this verse and I went to a friend of mine, Mary, and I said, explain this verse to me. And I didn't understand it then, but it pops to me now. Matthew chapter two, um, verse three. Uh, Okay, so, so the wise men come, I'll start in verse two. They said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. By the way, The word worship occurs three times in Matthew chapter two, and it alerts you to the basic orientation of their heart, their sincerity, that they were were sold out to whoever this redeemer was going to be. Already, they're sold out, right? They're there to worship. 
They're not there on an academic sort of exploratory, you know, mission to see and to observe. No, the Spirit of God has been speaking to their hearts. The nature has been speaking to their hearts. Their own prophetic utterances, the Hebrew scriptures have been speaking to their hearts. They know that they're going to find the Redeemer. And they're not going sort of in academic interest. They're going to worship. They say, hey, where's the, where's the guy? We're here to worship him. That gives you an insight into the sincerity of their heart and the purpose of their heart, the fact that God had been revealing himself to them. Now, verse three, this is the verse. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Think that through. They're troubled. They're disoriented. They're disturbed. These are all synonyms. A bunch of four, three foreigners show up, start asking about, hey, where's the Messiah? Because we're here, we've seen a star. There's not celebration. There's not anticipation. They're, they're troubled. Well, this right here alerts us to the point that Matthew is making and Ellen White is making here in her chapter that's drawn from Matthew chapter two, that even though God's covenant people were the descendants of Abraham, they were unprepared for the arrival of Messiah, but the non-Jewish people, the Gentile, them, those others, they were preparing. At least some of them were. And so there is this purposeful contrast. I was going to mention this later, but I'll just mention it right now. This chapter has, to me, all of the resonances in one of the most important, in fact, I think maybe one of the most pivotal chapters in the Old Testament. I read an article. I want to say it was from Dr. Richard Davidson. I could be wrong about that, but I think, it's, I think I'm right about that. Uh, Dr. Richard Davidson, one of, the, one of the great theological minds alive today, especially with regards to the Old Testament, wrote an article on Uriah the Hittite. Now, I don't want to go too far afield here, but I want to make a point. Uriah the Hittite, of course, was the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah the Hittite was the one that David, the king of Israel, had murdered, right? And then he took his wife, Bathsheba, and actually forced himself upon her. It wasn't consensual. All of the textual indicators, and Davidson brings this out in an excellent article that maybe I'll link to, that it was rape, right? That David took, the, the word there in the Hebrew is he literally harvested her, harvested her to himself. So you have this massive power differential. Uriah's away at war. David should have been away at war. He goes out onto the roof of his house. He looks down, sees this beautiful young lady, harvests her, takes her. She becomes pregnant. David realizes that this is going to be discovered because Uriah couldn't have gotten her pregnant because Uriah's out fighting. So calls Uriah back, says, hey, Uriah, go in and sleep with your wife. Uriah's like, no, I'm not going to sleep with my wife. All of my men are out in the field. All of the soldiers of Israel out in the field. I'm not, I won't go into my wife. How can I enjoy pleasure? How can I enjoy that when they're out in the field? I mean, so here's the point that Davidson makes. And in fact, now I'm sure it was Davidson. He says, this chapter, it's a uh, second king. Write this down, write this down. Second Kings, oh, excuse me. I, I said second Kings. That's not true. It's second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 11, right here, David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. And this is the point Davidson makes. He says, this chapter, perhaps as much as any other single chapter in the Old Testament, reveals the total failure and apostasy of Israel's leadership and the faithfulness of a non-Jewish person. Because Uriah was a Hittite. He was a non-Jewish person. So you have this incredible purposeful contrast in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where the appointed and anointed king of God's covenant people, God's chosen people, is unfaithful in the extreme. 
sexual uh, uh, abuse and murder and intrigue. I mean, the whole thing is a mess. And, and as contrasted with David's rabid, egregious unfaithfulness is Uriah's, Uriah the Hittite's unfaithfulness, or faithfulness, excuse me, his faithfulness. No, I won't go into my wife. No, I'm not going to. And, and then he was placed in the heat of battle and David killed him. So Davidson makes the point. This chapter is showing God's approval of, his affirmation of, even Gentile people that are sincere and honest and men of integrity. And then you have the king of God's covenant people who was a complete train wreck. By the way, just on that, Uriah the Hittite is not far from Matthew's thinking because in Matthew chapter one, in verse six, is it? Yes. In Matthew chapter one, um, Uriah is actually mentioned. Matthew chapter one, verse six. Jesse begot David the king. David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. By the way, that's one of the things that Davidson brings out is that she was continually and consistently referred to even after Uriah's death as Uriah the Hittite's wife. Uriah the Hittite's wife. As a recognition that David had power raped her and that Uriah had been unjustly killed. Okay, now you say, well, okay, whoa, 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 what are we talking about? What does this have to do with the Magi? Well, to me, this popped... Because what we see here is the religious leaders of God's covenant people, unfaithful, indifferent, apathetic, unaware, troubled, as Matthew says, all of Israel was troubled, but here these Gentile people, those people, those icky people, showing up. Not just showing up on an academic explore. No, they're showing up to worship. And they've showed up with gifts. So there's a contrast here a purposeful contrast. And in my view, it's, it's unmistakable. And so I was reminded today of 2 Samuel 11 and how this is not just a New Testament phenomenon. God has no problem. By the way, that's the story of the whole book of Jonah. The story of the whole book of Jonah is that Jonah was a reluctant, wayward, neglectful, terrible prophet. And all of the people of Nineveh responded overwhelmingly positively to the warning that Nineveh was going to be destroyed. This is a theme. This is a theme in scripture that God's chosen people are often the ones furthest from God and those other people are often the ones who are manifesting the very personal integrity and sincerity and commitment that God was asking of his people. And it's a, it's a, it's a theme. It is the theme of the book of Jonah. And if you want to watch a seven-part series that I did on that in my last church. I did a seven-part series, maybe it was an eight-part series, on the book of Jonah titled In the Felly of Abish. And you can find that on the Kingscliff YouTube channel. The punchline is the unfaithfulness of God's prophet and the faithfulness of the Gentile people. Okay, so this is a consistent theme and that's what popped out at me. I wrote in my margin here, this presents to us the dangers of us and them thinking. Listen to this. I'm quoting now from right in the middle of page 62. The wise men are not idolaters, right? If, if they're Zoroastrians, they are monotheistic, right? Fascinating. The wise men, she says, are not idolaters. And in the sight of God, they stand far higher than do these, the religious leaders of uh, the day, the Jewish religious leaders. In the sight of God, they stand far, far higher than these do. His professed worshipers, Yet they are looked upon by the Jews as heathen. 
right? Even among the appointed guardians of the holy oracles, their eager questionings touch no chord of sympathy. You get the sense here, they're asking, well, can you give us any information? Have you heard anything? Are you sure? Because we're pretty sure we've seen a star and we have this strong conviction in our heart. And it's like, get out of here, leave us alone. And she actually goes on to say, next page, she uses the word indifference. She talks about Herod being a jealous tyrant. I'm at the top of page 64 now, just skipped over about three paragraphs. Now pride and envy closed the door against the light. Pride and envy, both with Herod and with the religious leaders of Judaism. The reason was they weren't about ready to learn. Hey, 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 hey. We're the chosen people of God. We're the descendants of Abraham. Who are these Mickey Mouse people from far afield, uncircumcised, unfamiliar with Torah? Their posture is they have nothing to learn from them. They have nothing to learn from these people. And so their pride and their envy closed the door against the light. She continues, these learned teachers would not stoop to be instructed by those that they termed heathen. It could not be, they said, that God would pass them by to communicate with ignorant shepherds or uncircumcised Gentiles. You can feel the contempt. Yeah, they say that's not possible. God could not have passed us by. I mean, look at us. We are the bee's knees. We're the ones that have our ducks all lined up. We're the, cho- we're the descendants of Abraham. There is no way God could have passed us by. And talk to these people? I mean, are you kidding? Did you see the way they were dressed? Did you see how they talked? I mean, did you see that? No, there's no way, right? So their pride, their contempt, their, their insularity, created this bipartite world. That word means just two parts, us and them. And them in the Jewish mind at that time was a giant homogenous group of people that all looked the same, thought the same. Of course they weren't. There's all kinds of nuance and differentiation and linguistic and geographical and cultural, but that's not the way the Jews saw it. The Jews saw the world, the Jews of the first century, the Jewish leadership in particular, they saw the world as a binary. Us, the chosen covenant people of God, and them, the icky people. Which is one of the reasons that again and again and again, the disciples of Jesus and others, including the religious leaders of the day, are going to be scandalized by Jesus' free and familial association with the icky people, them. In fact, this will become the chief charge against Jesus by the religious leaders as communicated in Luke chapter 15, verse 2. This man receives and eats with sinners. (laughs) I can barely say it without getting vomit in the back of my throat. Right? Remember Jesus' disciples when he came? as a man, look at him talking to a Samaritan woman. Right? So that contempt, that national, cultural, intellectual, religious contempt. Friends, I don't know if you're feeling this, but it's going to be really easy to find an application. Right? The application is staring us in the face, but we're not there yet. Um, oh, I loved this scene. I loved this scene. I'm uh, toward the end of page 64, 63 in the original. Man, I loved this. She says that the, the, relig- uh, the, the Magi were disappointed by the indifference. There's that word again. I think she uses it two or three times. The indifference of the Jewish leaders. They had left Jerusalem less confident than they were when they entered the city. They thought, well, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we missed it. Maybe, maybe we missed something. And then this scene Oh, man, I like this. This got my, this got the hair standing up on my arms and the back of my neck. 
So the star then settles over Bethlehem. It originally had settled over the temple where they went, but they were disappointed. Now the star settles over Bethlehem. Look at this. I'm getting giddy. At Bethlehem, they found no royal guard stationed to protect the newborn king. None of the world's honored men were in attendance. Jesus was cradled in a manger. His parents, uneducated peasants, were his only guardians. Could this be he of whom it was written that he should raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel, that he should be a light to the Gentiles and for salvation to the ends of the earth? She's quoting Isaiah 49, 6 here. And when they came into the house, they saw the young child with his mother Mary and fell down and worshiped him. Now watch this. This is another powerful evidence of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, speaking, speaking truth, speaking providence, speaking wisdom. Beneath the lowly guise of Jesus, they recognized the presence of divinity. And they gave their hearts to him as their savior. They came to worship. And when they saw it, they were like, well, that's not exactly what we were expecting. But the spirit of God spoke and said, this is the truth. This, this is him. I know it's hard to believe, right? Right? The feeding trough, the poor uneducated parents. I get it. I get it. But this is him. And, and as soon as they were like, okay, then they respond in worship and in gift giving. And then they gave their hearts to him as their savior. He was not just the savior of Israel. He's the savior of the world, right? And so in this, I mean, I sometimes play this little game, this little game where I try to imagine what are the scenes that I would like to see the most in scripture. And I've asked this question of many people, like if you could see anything in the Old Testament, like you could have just been there and seen it, what would you see? And I've heard a lot of answers over the years, but some of the answers that I hear, people say, I would have loved to have seen the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, I would have loved to have seen uh, David slay Goliath. I would have loved to have seen creation. I hear that one a lot. That would have been a great one to have seen. Um, I would have loved to have seen Sinai, right? And then in the New Testament, I say, well, what are the scenes you would have liked to have seen there? And I, I hear a lot of answers, uh, good answers, really great answers. I have a lot of people say, man, I would have loved to have been a part of that Bible study that Jesus gave to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when he opened their mind the scriptures. I mean, that's in the top five for me. But this is a scene. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been a you know, proverbial fly on the wall in this scene, right? Like how weird, awkward, awesome was that scene when the star settles, the star settles right down over the top of Bethlehem and they are like, where are the royal guards? Where are all the, where's the august assembly? Where are the, and they go in and here's just like these, you know, this poor couple, no room in the inn, like in the, with the animals, this little baby, and they go in and there's that slight, hello, hi, we're, um, yeah, we have a story to tell you. I mean, can you, ah, ah! and then when the spirit of God speaks to them and says, yeah, don't mind the appearances because God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the strong. This is the guy. This is the one. And they just like present their gifts and they, I, what a scene, what a scene. I'm getting, yeah, I'm getting excited just thinking about it. And imagine what Mary and Joseph are thinking, right? They're like, 
whoa, this is a moment. You'd already had the Anna and Simeon moment in the temple. That kind of set them off. Joseph has had some dreams. He was going to have some dreams here. I mean, like, man. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. Oh, by the way, I just got to say this quickly at the top of page 65. I'll just read it. What a faith was theirs. They poured out their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What a faith was theirs. It might have been said of the wise men from the east as afterward of the Roman centurion. Then she quotes Jesus. Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. The fact that Ellen White quotes Jesus' affirmation of the hated Roman soldier centurion, Gentile, alerts you to the fact that this is a consistent theme here. This is a purposeful theme in Matthew and in the New Testament. Um, She then sort of tells the story here about how the wise men had not understood that Herod was insincere and disingenuous when he said, oh yeah, 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 go find the child. Because Herod is thinking, like all of the Herodian dynasty, right, which was just a giant mess, he's thinking a rival, right? That's all he can think about. And his life is characterized by fear and suspicion and uncertainty. And so they didn't discern that. They were like, oh, okay, so we'll go tell Herod now. Um, But then an angel comes and says, yeah, no, bad idea. Um, Bottom of page 65, she just drops the great controversy theme in there. What I've been doing is I've just been writing GC in the margin whenever Satan shows up right here. Here's Satan. She just drops him in. And we've talked about this. This is a consistent feature of her writings. You go from the seen to the unseen right? From the seen to the unseen. And talk about satanic. What Herod does can only be described by that word, right? Like, yeah, we're going to slaughter all of the infants two years and under because he was so insecure about his own standing. His life was characterized by fear and uncertainty and suspicion. And uh, so this is clearly satanic. It's terrible. And she then quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 5, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and she would not be comforted because they were gone. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. I, I can't even, I don't even like my mind to think about the scene that I just mentioned a moment ago with the uh, Magi coming in before the Messiah. That's a scene I like to think about. This scene about the slaughter of what would have been hundreds or perhaps thousands of young children. I can't, I, can't, I can't think about that. I can't, no, I can't think about that. It hurts my heart too much. Okay, I'm at the top of page 66 and we're right at the end here. How about this line? If we have given our hearts to Jesus, we shall also bring our gifts to him. She's not wrong. She is not wrong. If we have given our hearts to him, we will also bring our gifts to him. By the way, don't just think gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Think the gift of intelligence, the gift of time, the gift of energy, the gift of influence, the gift of money, the gift of the gift of life. Life is a gift, man. If we have given our hearts to him, should we not also give our gifts to him? Well, the wise men set a great example here. They gave their hearts to him, and then they gave their gifts to him. Because the gifts are an indication of the heart. Right? Hot. So hot. Um, Okay, one final thing I want to talk about here, then we do the rubric. Okay, you will remember that yesterday I said there were two giant themes two giant themes yesterday. That's the nature of sonship. And I mentioned Ty Gibson's book, The Sonship of Christ. The nature of sonship, we'll get into this in greater detail. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? But then also the nature of the judgment, the nature of the judgment. And I quoted this like 
half a dozen times yesterday. I'm going to quote it again today. I'm reading on page 57. The worshipers of self belong to Satan's kingdom. In their attitude toward Christ, all would show on which side they stood, and thus everyone passes judgment on himself. And I mentioned yesterday that judgment is not primarily, in the final analysis, something that God is doing arbitrarily to us, but something that God is accepting and allowing that we have done to ourselves. Okay, this is a giant idea, a giant idea. And I want to show you something here that is absolutely mind-blowing. That theme about the nature of judgment is the outworking of the consequences that we ourselves have made, the decisions that we ourselves have made. The outworking of the consequences of the decisions that we ourselves have made, watch this. I'm at the bottom of page 66, 65 in the original pagination. Are you ready for this? This calamity, the calamity of the death of the infants at the hand of Herod. Okay, this is a big idea. You're you're not going to like this. I mean, I don't like it, but it's true. This calamity the Jews brought upon themselves. I'm reading. How so? How did the Jews bring this calamity upon themselves? Watch this. If they had been walking in faithfulness and humility before God, he would, in a signal manner, have made the wrath of the king harmless to them. But they had separated themselves from God by their sins and had rejected the Holy Spirit, which was their only shield. They had not studied the scriptures with a desire to conform to the will of God, like the wise men had. They had searched, they had searched the prophecies. Oh, oh, watch this. They had searched the pro- they had searched for prophecies which could be interpreted to exalt themselves and to show how God despised all the other nations. Remember, we talked about this in one of the opening one or two chapters, how it was the hatred of the Romans, not the love of God, that was motivating much of the first century Jewish leadership. A religion motivated by hate? Look at this. They searched the prophecies to show how God despised all the other nations. I'm continuing to read here. It was their proud boast that the Messiah who was going to come as a king and, and conquer his enemies and tread down the heathen in his wrath, thus, the word thus there means, the word thus there means that what followed from that attitude toward their neighbors, thus they had excited, excited the hatred of their rulers. Through their misrepresentation of Christ and his mission, Satan had purpose to com- compass, compass the destruction of the Savior, but instead of this, it returned upon their own heads. Okay, it's a bit of a big thought here and a little circuitous, but here's the point she's making. The posture that they had toward their neighbors, the posture that they had toward those around them was, yeah, you just wait. You wait till our Messiah comes. You wait till our Deliverer comes. He is going to wreak havoc on you, you uncircumcised, filthy heathen. Well, when you take that posture toward people, especially when it's not the actual posture that's revealed in Scripture, that's the posture of religious pretense. That's the posture of religious hypocrisy. That's not the posture of the God who is himself love. Well, what ended up up happening was they had a relationship of hatred to their neighbors. They had a relationship, their neighbors hated them and they hated their neighbors. And so when the word about the possible arrival of Messiah could come, Herod, fearing for his his position, went and slaughtered all the the, uh, infants. Judgment was not something that God did to them, it was something that happened by a result of the decisions that they himself had made over many years. 
So I had mentioned there was something briefly I wanted to bring out in, in Matthew chapter 2, and it's just so simple, you'll get, you'll get it real quick here. Um, Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Cool words. Exceedingly great joy. Now listen to this. Six verses later, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. Okay, the use of the word exceedingly there followed by the um, attitude is, tells you everything you need to know. The wise men's attitude toward God and toward the world around them, toward their neighbors, was an attitude of exceedingly great joy. Herod's attitude, which was mirrored, frankly, in the attitude of many of the religious aristocracy, was an attitude of being exceedingly angry. Now, one of the great providences in all of this is that the gifts that the wise men had brought... The gold, frankincense, and myrrh were valuable gifts. And in a very cool providence, those became the means by which Joseph and Mary could continue to travel and fund their journeys because they're going to have to flee now. They're going to go to Egypt for a time. Matthew describes this several times. He quotes Old Testament prophecies and says, this was happened so that it would be fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. Well, they didn't have the resources and now they do. And this is just like God, right? That great symphony conductor that we talked about, that great orchestral conductor to, to have a, a blessing here, benefit somebody here. And God lines things up in such a perfectly providential and beautiful way that they now have these resources, these gifts from the wise men, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh that could be sold and leveraged to actually fund the journey that they needed to be on in order to keep Messiah safe. Man, God is incredible. God is absolutely incredible. So I hope you enjoyed today. Let's quickly go through our rubric, and uh, I'll try not to read yesterday's rubric for today like I did yesterday. Uh, Here we go. Uh, We go through the point, the person, the prayer, and the practice. Very briefly, what is the point? What is the point of this chapter? Chapter 6, we have seen his star. Um, The point is to show that God works with the willing and the humble, whoever they are. That God works with the willing and the humble, whoever they are. You could also say it like this. For God, sincerity matters more than nationality and personal pedigree. Sincerity matters more than nationality or personal pedigree. That's the point of the chapter. God works with the humble and sincere, whoever they are, or wherever they're from. Who is the person? What do we learn about God in this? Well, I think we learn something that we've been learning in the chapters preceding this, and that is that God is the creator and lover of all peoples. Amen? God is the creator and lover of all peoples. He's also the provider, right? God is the one who provides by means and through ways and through providences that we could never have. We, it reminds me of one of the great statements from the pen of Ellen White where she says, he has a thousand ways of which we know not. God has his ways, man. When we see obstacles, God sees opportunities. Okay, so who is the person, the creator and lover of all peoples? Number three, how should I pray? Okay, I got two or three prayers here that are gonna, really, these are my prayers. Maybe you can apply them to your life as well. Number one, Lord, keep me from spiritual pride. We've already talked about that. Don't let my light, the light that is in me, become darkness. Keep me from spiritual pride. 
Teach me to see the best in others and to assume the best about others. Here's a great life hack. Philippians chapter 2, I think it's verses 4, 5, 6, somewhere in there. Let every man esteem others better than himself. You release yourself from an incredible mental, psychological, emotional burden when you purposefully, intentionally, and thoughtfully think of others as possessing motives that are at least as sincere as your own. If you just do that, just like, just there's a little switch in your brain. You can look at people with suspicion. You can look at people with contempt. You can look at people with judgmental eyes, or you can just flick a little switch in your brain and say, God, by your spirit, I want to assume that other people are at least as sincere as I am, at least as genuine as I am, at least as, right? And when you do that, a really cool thing happens. Rather than having a life that's characterized by suspicion and uncertainty like Herod and fear, now you're like the wise men. You're like, hey, you know, you're happy to bring gifts and you know, hey, have you, you know, you're going in thinking the best. By the way, just a thought on that. The reason that the wise men did not discern that Herod was actually plotting and planning the destruction of the child is that they assumed the best. Now you're going to say, well, that, David, that's not very street smart. That's not very savvy. Listen, listen, street smarts are overrated. You treat people the way that God treats them and let the chips fall where they may. Let God take care of your street smarts. When we assume the best about others, which clearly the wise men did with Herod, right? They were just like, oh, okay, you want to worship him too? Well, then we'll run ahead and we'll find him and then we'll come back and tell you. It was only when Jesus showed up or when the Holy Spirit showed up and said, yeah, 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 that's not what's going on there. And they later would have heard the report of the death of all of the infants in Bethlehem and they would have been like, whoa, whoa. So my prayer is, God, keep me from spiritual pride. Help me to see the best in others. Because a really cool thing happens. When you see the best in others and when you speak the best in others, not only is God's word creative, your word is creative. Your word is creative. If you tell someone, hey, I believe in you. I think you're going to succeed. If you assume that people have sincere motives, not always, but very often, they will behave in accordance with the way that you have postured yourself toward them. And the converse is also true. And this is what happened with the Jews and their neighbors. If you treat people with a contempt that they detect, they will respond in kind, right? It, it, it's just the way that life works. If you respond to people with a positivity and a generosity and a magnanimity toward them, they will very likely, very often respond in kind. You say, oh, I'm, I don't want to get taken advantage of. I need to have my street savvy. I need to have my street smarts. Let God take care of that. You just go around assuming the best about people. I'm not suggesting that you're ignorant, no, yeah, you can still be discerning, but don't be judgmental. And there's a big difference between judging a person and discerning a situation. Anyway, that's my prayer. Then finally, where can I practice this in my life? Well, hello. As we said, the application has been staring us uh, right in the face from the outset of this chapter. Where can I practice this? Treating others, treating them the way that I would want to be treated. Not with judgment, not with suspicion, right? How do I treat others the way that God has treated me? That's how I can practice this. And not looking at somebody from outward appearances and immediately assuming that you know everything about them. By the way, Malcolm Gladwell, a great uh, modern observer and writer, has written a brand new book about this called Talking, Talking to Strangers. And the basic thesis of the book is Gladwell goes through, he documents a lot of really fascinating stories where he basically says, we think that we can make 
absolutely accurate and sure judgments about people based on the flimsiest of evidence and of clues. We just look at them, we size them up in a matter of moments, seconds, and we think we know what's going on. And what Gladwell does in the book is he shows how often we are tragically, terribly wrong in our assessments. In fact, I'll say this very quickly. I'm so bad at this, and I know I'm so bad at it, that years ago I realized that my first impressions of people were often so off that I started making a mental catalog and note of when I meet somebody that I know is going to be a part of my life going forward, like a new head elder or a new neighbor, I make a mental note of what I think they're going to be like. I then go back six months later or a year later or you know several years later and revisit what I thought they would be like and I find that I'm wrong like 90% of the time. This is Gladwell's point. You cannot judge a book by the cover. You just can't. You just, the religious leader saw the wise men and they were like, <laughs> are you kidding? These guys are gonna teach us something? Just by visual clues. You, you can't do that. You can't do that. And so if you wanna learn more about the actual sociology of it, uh, and the evidence, evidentiary nature of it, read Glad Gladwell's book, uh, Talking to Strangers. Um, so that's my big takeaway here. And then my final takeaway is, Lord, teach me how to bring my little G gift to the capital G gift, Jesus. Jesus is a gift to the world. So any gift that I would bring, influence, money, resources, time, talent, those are all little G gifts. The gift, the gift, is God's gift of Jesus his son, our savior. And so any gift that we bring, you can't outgive the giver, right? Any gift that we bring is just your little gold, your little frankincense, your little myrrh. And who knows? Those little gifts that we bring might be used by God in some powerfully providential way that we are unaware of, right? Little did the wise men know that those gifts that they were bringing would actually become the means for a very poor couple who were the parent. That's not what they thought. They thought they would be piling these gifts on top of a large stack of gifts for the Redeemer because they thought that the Jewish people would have been, would have received. But no, they didn't know. So they brought their gift and their gift was a difference maker. Their gift made all the difference for Mary and Joseph. And your gift can make all the difference for someone. You might not even know it, but your little gift can make a giant difference. Okay, so there we go. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I've got to run off and teach Sabbath school in 18 minutes. I'm just going to close with a quick prayer. And I will see you tomorrow morning, uh, Sunday morning at 9 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. I'll let myself sleep in a little tomorrow. I'll have a, have a lazy morning tomorrow morning. 9 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. We'll be here tomorrow. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a great chapter and what a great story. Lord, to have been a fly on the wall to have, to have looked into that scene, that initially awkward scene as the wise men come in and see something unlike what they certainly, certainly unlike what they expected. But Father, that awkward circumstance quickly transitioned into an awesome circumstance when they presented their gifts and then they, they bowed before the Savior of the world and gave their hearts to him. Father, through the eye of the Spirit, through the eye of discernment, they, they understood what many of the, what the religious leaders in Jerusalem did not understand. And so, Father, help us to discern spiritual things spiritually. Help us to have a humility and a magnanimity toward those around us that we don't stand in judgment of anybody, but we reserve judgment. We, we let God, we let you be the judge. And, Father, we are down here just doing our best 
to think the best of those around us. Teach us how to do that, Father, because it doesn't come natural to us. Our natural instinct is to look with suspicion and judgment and hostility on others, especially those that aren't like us. Father, teach us how not to do that. Teach us how to see the world, the wide, wonderful world, as a place where your providence has been moving and blessing, where your spirit has been moving and blessing since the beginning. And so, Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray now that as we go throughout the rest of our Sabbath day, that it would be a day uh, of great joy and of great blessing. And uh, not just that we will be blessed, but more importantly, that we can be a blessing to others is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.